The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Tarek Bicker, the avid commentator. So, Tarek, introduce yourself to the audience. Uh, who are you? What's your background? How did you get involved, interested in journalism? And uh, do you really love commenting on everything? So I certainly do. I've been doing that for a long time. And I actually got into journalism originally because it was an outlet to stop annoying my girlfriend with all my ranty things that I talk about with, you know, finance and economics. So, yeah, I've been doing this for a long while now. I started out just, you know, doing pro bono work as a journalist. And eventually I worked my way up till I was working for News Corp. So I worked for one of the largest multinational news organizations in the world where I basically have my own sort of weekend write-up on, you know, geopolitics, finance, economics, you name it generally from an Australian perspective. And more recently, I have also been working with the great Tracy Shuhart, aka She Girl, on Twitter, working for Hill Tower Resource Advisors. So yeah, a lot to do and a lot to talk about. What makes the Australian perspective maybe different from what you've seen in the West? I mean, listen, Everyone, I think, at the end of the day, tries to play the pundit when they're on TV, but you know, some pundits are more knowledgeable than others. I think the difference, say, you know, the Australian perspective is that we are very much from the outside looking in. And, you know, that comes with its own inherent strengths and weaknesses. On, you know, on one hand, you know, you, you see things arguably a little bit more disconnected and dispassionately. So you're, you ha- you're forced to be more data-driven than you would be, you know, than when you're in the US where you can actually observe things with your own eyes and you actually get a feeling for things. So that's sort of, you know, the upside, but then also the downside is just that, you know, as Australians, we are very much captive to the moves of the larger economies, you know, to the US, to the EU, and particularly to China. So, you know, it, it does give us that unique perspective, but we also see the downside on, at the same time. Okay, so we're going to be touching on those two, the loan payments, especially that you did some work there, but since you just mentioned China and being captive to larger economies, I want to get your take on where the China economy is cycle-wise. At the start of the year, everybody was saying the reopening is going to be wildly bullish for China. And it turns out that's not really been fully true. It seems like there's some selective lockdowns kind of happening again. How has the Chinese economy been faring and how is it impacting the Australian economy currently? It's very much been a mixed bag so far. You know, you've seen strong a strong performance of the services sector. You know, we saw a bit of a boost for the manufacturing sector at first as the Chinese economy sort of, you know, reopened and refired following the end of, you know, that long period of lockdown. But 
when you really look at it in more broad terms, you know, China has over 20% youth unemployment and things are getting quite a bit challenging in that regard. So, you know, there's really that two-speed economy going on and there's all these different competing factors. You know, there's issues with local government debt. There's issues with, you know, the continued, you know, well, the Chinese property sector remaining in the doldrums and, you know, now even, you know, with falling steel demand. And that I think is probably a good segue into, you know, how that's impacting Australia because, you know, we've seen, you know, iron ore prices more than halve from where, from their previous peaks were. And, you know, we're seeing falls and now in the prices of coking coal, which, you know, coking coal and iron ore are, you know, two of Australia's, depending on, you know, the day and the price, but generally they're our two largest exports. So that's a fairly significant blow there for Australia if those prices fall. And, you know, I mean, we recent, Australia recently recorded its first budget surplus in, what is it now, 15 years on the back of these rocketing commodity prices due to the war in Ukraine and due to, you know, these, this demand from China. But now that demand's fading, I see the, you know, a much, much more challenging time ahead. And, you know, just on the topic of the, the property sector, I, that they're really trying to engineer more of a glide path down rather than a reignition of, you know, the Chinese property bubble that, you know, President Xi and some of his predecessors have spent so long trying to push back on now. So I've, I've had others uh, on Twitter space talk about the Australian property market and the dynamic of very wealthy Chinese citizens buying up property in Australia just to take money out of China. It seems it's been a kind of a big distorting factor. And there's a lot of concern around property prices in general correcting. That glide path that you mentioned, what's the likelihood you think of that happening? If you have a U.S housing recession, which I still think myself it's coming at some point, uh, presumably that's going to impact, you know, sentiment across the globe. One would imagine, so I mean, like in terms of like, you know, the Chinese property sector's glide path, I think that that's very much being actively managed. You know, they've got all these different tools that they're trying to, you know, implement at any given time, you know, whether it's, you know, cutting deposit rates to try and drive more investment into property, because that's something that we've actually seen. Like if you look at where Chinese households have allocated their wealth and allocated their, you know, their additional net worth or their additional capital that they have amassed across the pandemic, particularly more affluent households, instead of it flowing into property where it has more historically, it's now flowing into savings. So I think that they're trying to manage this glide path for the Chinese, you know, property sector is going to be very difficult because, you know, they're constantly trying to, you know, pull different levers and push different buttons and switches. But when it's something like the Chinese property market, like I'll give you, I'll give you an example of why this is so difficult compared with, you know, say for example, the US or elsewhere. In China, only about 13% of new homes are purchased by first time buyers. The other 87% are purchased by people who have one or more houses already. So it's very much a speculative market. So then you've got President Xi coming out and saying houses are for living in and then repeating that over and over again, you know, saying well, we need houses for living in for what, what do they call it? Common prosperity. It's very difficult to then reignite the demand they need in order to maintain that glide path and for it not to turn into something more of a crash, which is why I think we're seeing this stealth nationalization of the Chinese property sector. Yeah, that, that's certainly an interesting dynamic. And the point about steel and coking coal. I mean, the it is true that there is a commodity disinflation pulse that's taking place. Again, the expectation at the start of the year was that you'd have a reacceleration of inflation because of the reopening and demand for 
commodities on that reopening, but clearly that's not playing out. Do you get a sense that um, the narratives that were so strong last year as far as why commodities were in a secular bull cycle, that's just not playing out um, when you look at the actual activity going on in China? Generally, yeah, I would agree. I mean, you haven't seen the construction sector recover. You haven't seen you know, these big pushes for, you know, stimulus and activity that you would normally associate with the reacceleration of the Chinese economy. But I think that the commodity story is really going to be a varied one going forward because, you know, say, for example, you've got copper, you know, copper has, you know, historically low levels of inventory, you know, there's issues propping up with, you know, geopolitical and local political issues in, you know, many commodity producing nations, sorry, copper producing nations. but at the end of the day, copper is also beholden to, you know, it is Dr. Copper, it is beholden to global markets. So it is being dragged down by that impulse, even though, you know, demand is still relatively robust globally. But then you've got the other side of the coin and you've got, say, like things like iron ore and coaching coal, which are at the moment a lot more receptive to that downturn in steel demand, that downturn in, in steel production. But I think that one of the things that one really needs to be careful with the Chinese economy is that it can move very quick. Commodity prices in China can move very quickly. I mean, like we've seen iron ore enter a new technical bull market, you know, literally in the last, what is it, a little over two weeks, just because, you know, China, you know, policymakers have said, we are going to pull stimulus levers, even though those stimulus levers to me and to a lot of other people, including the Chinese government themselves, are very much more tinkering around the edges rather than the, you know, the 2008 style fire hose of stimulus and liquidity. Yeah. And just like fool of Russian, speculators Russian, right? Yes. It feels kind of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy on that. And are the links between Australia and China as strong as they were during the commodity super cycle, right? It used to be the case that if you want to really know what China's economy is doing, just look at the Aussie dollar, right? And get a sense of sort of currency relative movements. But is there Has there been more decoupling over the years or is there still a pretty big impact in terms of the way China affects Australia? It's really, a, it's really a mixed bag depending on your perspective. Like if you look at it purely from the number of different exports, say for example, you know, we, China had punitive trade actions against Australia on things like barley and wine and crayfish and pretty much anything you, that you can imagine that wasn't directly feeding the Chinese economic story was hit. There was a list produced by local banks here in Australia, the Commonwealth Bank, and it was basically just yellow meant it was impacted and it was a sea of yellow. But in terms of value, you know, purely in terms of like overall trade volumes, Australia hasn't really decoupled from China at all. In fact, it's actually become even more reliant than it was during the commodity super cycle. Because during, when the commodity super cycle kicked off after the, after the global financial crisis, Australia still had very strong trade volumes to places like Japan and South Korea. But as China has continued to grow its economy, continued to grow its demand for commodities, it's China now is larger source, sorry, a larger destination for Australian exports than the next three nations combined. So Australia is more reliant than ever. And I think the thing is because the Australian economy and in particular the Australian federal government is so reliant on commodity prices and for revenue in the form of company tax and revenue in the form of mining royalties, it really is a direct input into the Australia's broader economic fortunes because it influences how much scope the, fe the federal government really has to spend. And I mean, I, even if you look at, say, 
say something like the Australian dollar versus the US dollar versus, and then the Chinese yuan versus the US dollar. When you look at them over a long enough time period, they're very similar. You know, it's still very much a, you know, a, a trade on China from, you know, just using the Aussie dollar as a proxy. I got to assume that's going to make the RBA's path forward maybe more challenging. I believe they basically look to the idea that there's still more rate hikes coming. Talk about just the central bank side of things for a bit in the context of inflation domestically in Australia and yeah, sort of the outside global inflationary pressures that might be coming into Australia? Well, you know, I think the first thing to understand about Australia relative to the rest of the world is that our inflation is lagging. You know, while the rest of the world is now experiencing or heading to experience the sort of worst of the base effects that are coming in terms of energy prices, for Australia, our energy price shock is still yet to arrive. We have experienced it in terms of higher fuel and diesel costs. But in terms of like electricity prices, gas prices, and when I say gas, I mean natural gas, LNG, you know, for homes, to for heating, et cetera, that's still yet to come. You know, we are talking still about 25, 30, 35% increases that are still yet to feed into the system. And I think it's also worth noting that due to the way that the methodology operates here in Australia in terms of how our CPI is calculated, there is still a great deal of there's still a great deal of inflation to come from rents because while, say, for example, the US and other nations have now seen the drive from rental inflation in the CPI peaking and now rolling over, here in Australia, we're still probably at least six months of data away from the peak and that's at the earliest because if you look at the data from, say, private providers, they say that rents are up somewhere between 13 and about 26%. Whereas the CPI is up by about five. So there's still a lot of scope for the Australian CPI to continue to remain strong. And while there are, you know, obviously base effects we have of our own, which are going to help blunt that impulse, I think it's going to help keep Australian inflation uncomfortably high for the RBA. And just to go back to the point that you made about uh, China and the inflation picture here in Australia. You know, there is, you know, quite a bit of talk on Twitter from the likes of, you know, Michael Cow and some other people who I, you know, very much look to and respect on, on the issue of the Chinese yuan. We're talking about a devaluation. And if they devalue their currency and the Australian dollar responds in kind, particularly given the fact that it's in a historically weak position compared to where it has been in, in relative, in recent years, that could see further downward pressure on the Australian dollar particularly if we see a broader risk-off moment in global markets, which, you know, judging by some of your tweets the, the, this morning, we may be getting in, in the not-too-distant future, particularly if that Barron's cover ends up being the contrarian indicator that it sometimes is, then the Australian dollar could get hammered. And the RBA is very much concerned about importing inflation, which could end up forcing rates higher. Yeah, although the cynicals say the fact that I'm getting nervous about it means that the market keeps going higher. <laughs> I think I'm a worrying indicator. Even though I try to identify this from the standpoint of conditions, but I think you're spot on. And yeah, listen, you haven't really had a sort of classic risk off flight to safety, uh, really, I'd argue, since the COVID crash. I mean, last year was not flight to safety risk off because bonds didn't respond and the currency movement was all over the place, unless you were obviously just long the dollar. But it is going to be interesting to see how global volatility picking up could impact the inflation side of things for different countries. That point about lags, I think, is underappreciated. I keep going back to here in the States, you know, the regional banking quotes crisis, right? That 
we saw in March, which now everyone forgot about, by the way, right? Given the AI narrative. But, you know, that was not based on interest rate hikes from this year. It was based on interest rate hikes from last year. Now, yes, you know, markets are more efficient, but the reality is, you know, it's that whole long and variable lags between interest rates, inflation, the economy. Do you get the sense that in Australia, those lags, you kind of allude to it, tend to be longer in terms of the impact of CPI versus you know, other developed economies. I mean, the Eurozone's already in recession and they still want high rates, but again, that acts with a lag. So I'm trying to get to sort of the, those delays. Is something unique about Australia in terms of when those rate hikes really factor through? Yeah, I would say that things are quite unique here because Australia has to start, I mean, I think that Australia needs to be sort of just put into a different context than the US and other nations because we haven't had a recession, a proper recession outside of COVID in 32 years. So for a very long time. And it's it's very much changed the perspective of Australian consumers to think that nothing bad is ever going to happen. And, you know, I mean, I'll give you an, I'll give you an example. Here in Australia, consumer confidence is at its lowest level since the height of our last recession, during which unemployment rose by 5%. Yet, the problem is, people are still spending. Only now we're starting to see, you know, this contraction in overall spending, and it's taken, you know, quite some time. So Australia is unique in that regard that people believe that, you know, sort of tighter monetary policy is transitory. And there's also the fact that historically, Around about somewhere between 85 and 95% of Australian mortgages have been variable rate. We are not like the United States and other nations which have a a high proportion of fixed rate mortgages. So theoretically, Australia should be affected more quickly by rising rates, not less. But because of the fact that the RBA ran basically a big cash handout for the banks in terms of low funding costs, we saw this huge uptick. In, in people taking on fixed rate loans to the point where they took up about 40% of the overall loan books. So that, in, that as well has blunted the normal monetary policy reaction here in Australia. And I just think that people just aren't prepared for this idea that we could have a recession and that, you know, things could get quite challenging. And expand on that, that variable rate for a moment. I've had several people on these spaces from Canada, for example, right, which has the adjustable reset. Is it a similar structure in Australia where there are certain dates where there's almost like a bulleted reset of the mortgage rate? Yeah, well, I mean, because, you know, what they did during COVID was that they basically pinned the three-year bond yield at 0.1%. So that that created this big rolling block, this big block of mortgages that were written at, you know, the lo- you know the lowest possible rate. So, I mean, you're talking about a mortgage, realistically, they were written based on the RBA's data around, at around somewhere between 1.9 and 2%. So there's this big glut of mortgages, you know, up to about, I think it's about 35% of the loan book that's going to be, that has been expiring and will continue to expire that is, you know, just rolling off. And I think it's worth noting just how large an increase that these borrowers are seeing. You know, like they're seeing rate, their rate goes from about 2% to, you know, the prevailing rate at this point is about 6%. So, you know, they're seeing their interest repayments triple. And that is larger than some of the case studies I've seen from, you know, the likes of CNN and others who've put them together from what happened in the US during, you know, your housing crash. Because, you know, the, they had these teaser rates, which were, 
you know, significantly lower than market rates, which is exactly what happened here in Australia, lower than our standard variable rates. And then the people are rolling off on these loans and they're just ending up getting absolutely wrecked by these higher rates. And I think, you know, one of the only re one of the, well, one of the major reasons why we're not following the US down the garden path of the housing crash is just the fact that the banks here are willing to just, for the moment, just look somewhat look the other way. Well, you just made me very fucking bearish on it. Honestly, given, given what you just said. I mean, honestly, you may need to have a real risk off period to correct that. I mean, you know, it, otherwise, to your point, consumers are going to get screwed over when they suddenly start realizing that their cash flow is hugely impacted. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the thing is that, like, there's so many, you know, different aspects to the Australian economy that are looking sick. Like, I mean, I'll give you an example. Like, I mean, the US has had issues with, you know, falling real wages growth and falling household purchasing power because obviously inflation has, you know, significantly outstripped wages growth up until relatively recently. But here in Australia, prior to the pandemic, wages, real wages growth was very weak. So Australian real wages today are now back where they were in 2009. And things are only going to get worse in that regard because inflation is going to continue to outstrip wages. I mean, the last inflation print on a quarterly basis was around 7%. Wages growth is 3.7. So, you know, households are still losing purchasing power in a big way. But, you know, I suppose like, you know, to go back to the differences between Australia and elsewhere is that there's still the belief that everything is going to be A-OK. Everyone's perfectly happy to, you know, hold on by their fingernails and just hope that things are going to turn out fine. Because in fairness to them, you know, Australia has endured crisis after crisis and housing prices have risen and everything's turned out okay. Like we had the Asian financial crisis, you know, we had the bursting of the dot-com bubble, we had the global financial crisis, we had COVID and, you know, Australia has emerged, you know, stronger on paper at least after each and every one. So you know, I think that's the problem with betting against the Australian housing market and betting against, you know, the economy in that regard, because everything is fine until all of a sudden it isn't. And then I think things are going to get very interesting. But right. But there, there's also a key difference also with Australia versus, you know, the West, which is that you, you said it earlier right, that it's surplus. I mean, you're coming from a, a place of government balance sheet strength, whereas, you know, any kind of crisis in the West, you know, the answer is just to print more money, which just causes a re-leveraging. Yeah, I think that the surplus is a bit of an aberration. I mean, like it's Australia has historically, you know, prior to the global financial crisis, it ran surpluses all the time. It was just the done thing. It was politically demanded by the electorate, which is a bit strange when you think about it. But, you know, it from space perspective, but it was just the way things were done. And still to this day, fiscal responsibility is valued by Australian voters to a degree that I would say is not present in a lot of other Western economies. But the current surplus is very much a product of the war in Ukraine and the massive run-up we saw in coal and, in particular, LNG prices, which has really helped the Australian, you know, the Australian government achieve, you know, this, what a lot of people, you know, are calling a miracle because there was, prior to the pandemic, you know, there was still this, this deficit after deficit and I mean, I'll give you an example that our parliamentary budget office, so which is like the equivalent of the the CBO in the US, recently produced a projection for Australia's economy and Australia's fiscal balance, I think going all the way up to about 2040. And it was large deficits as far as the eye can see. So 
eventually, you know, this will come to an end, you know, of this time of extremely high commodity prices, you know, driven by the war. Well, it will come to an end eventually, depending on what happens with the war, but I don't think it's terribly sustainable. And I think that the government here knows that. So those in the audience will know that the Twitter space does not address Australia. It addresses student loan payments. So I know you said you did some work on this. First of all, why is it you're, you looked at student loan payments in the U.S. when you're in Australia? Well, you know, the thing is, your economy is the one left powering the global economy at this point. You know, the Europe's in recession. China is not performing well. And, you know, really, you know, the U- the U.S. is the main driver of growth that's really still standing. And it's also the fact that, you know, U.S. markets in terms of rates, in terms of pretty much everything else, guides outcomes for Australian markets. So, you know, I mean, I guess it's for people in the U.S. I don't spend too much time thinking about Australia, but here in Australia, we spend a whole lot of time thinking about the U.S. economy because, I mean, I'll give you an example. Like there was, you know, recently a report from one of our big banks talking about the possibility of an Australian recession. But the possibility of an Australian recession was basically entirely predicated on whether or not the U.S. had a recession. And if the U.S. had a recession, well, then the chances of an Aussie recession got a whole hell of a lot higher. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. No, no, for sure. And that makes a ton of sense. Okay, so so let's go through the student loan payments resuming. And you know, for those that are out of the loop, maybe are not thinking about student loan payments, outline a little bit of just what happened the last, you know, three, four years with student loans, pausing where we are now. Okay, well... When the pandemic struck, the Trump administration basically paused student loan repayments. You could keep paying them if you wanted to, but there was a forbearance period. So 45.3 million Americans had the ability to basically just not pay their student loans. And well, most of them didn't. A study performed by for the New York Fed have found is that about 84% of student, of, of student loan balances were not paid down during that period. And basically people just took advantage of the extra cash in their pockets. So that was, that particular policy was extended again and again by the Trump administration at first and then by the Biden administration. So, you know, we're coming up now on three and a half years. Well, it will be three and a half years by the time this concludes that it's been running and basically injecting a whole bunch of extra cash into the US economy. The, the average monthly student loan repayment has all the latest data is about $460. So if you take that, multiply it by the number of students, it comes to about $213 billion a year, which is being injected, $250 billion a year being injected into the US economy. So that's about 0.95% of GDP, which is while, you know, we've, we live in a very strange time of these enormous programs that we saw during COVID, in relative terms, that's a fairly, you know, sizable boost to the U.S. economy. Are there studies that show that just given, it, you know, you talk about younger citizens, right? I mean, that that spending that was done because of the, the pause resulted in more distortion, just 
you know, if you have an abatement of paying off loans and you're older, yeah, you might do it, pay off other loans, right? I mean, there's a lot of studies that show that a lot of stimulus measures end up actually going back to paying off credit card debt or other dynamics for older generations. Uh, with younger generations, was it more frivolous spending that was that took place, you think? I would imagine so. I mean, I think the thing is we sort of, we lack the clarity of data in the sense that it's difficult to separate the impact of the pandemic and the impact on it had on, you know, consumer psychology, because even, you know, some of the older people who were receiving this, I mean, there's plenty of people who are, you know, boomers who are now spending money hand over fist that they wouldn't have before. So it's a bit, you know, sort of distorted in that regard. But even if you just, even if you look at the student loan pause purely through the lens of a fiscal transfer, to household, you know, in, in a very broad sense, it's still a, like the fiscal multiplier on something like that is still about well over a hundred percent of its cost. So, I mean, there was a study done by Moody's following the Obama stimulus, you know, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, which was passed in 2009. And that found that somewhere between 108 and, 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 that study found the GDP was increased by somewhere between 108 and 122% from these direct fiscal transfers. And that was in the form of tax rebates. So I think that there's a sort of fairly similar relationship there. So, you know, I think this is a fairly sizable contributor to keeping the US economy, you know, afloat, keeping the US economy growing but also driving in additional inflation pressures across the time it's been in place. Do you get the sense that investors, traders, the media in general, they're underestimating how large of a drag that could be on the economy? Could that be one of the reasons that the Fed doesn't hike rates anymore? I think it's, I think it's, a possi- I think it's possible that that's part of the, well, I think they, it's definitely part of the Fed's thinking. You know I mean? It's, a, it's an absolutely huge input. But I think that, this, while this is a rather sizable thing, I think it's quite possible that it just ends up being the straw that breaks the camel's back because the US economy is not in an amazing place to begin with. And, you know, we've seen, say, for example, you look at the various Federal Reserve regional PMIs, they're not in a great place. And, you know, they're already well and truly in contraction, as is the broader manufacturing sector, if you look at, you know, any number of indicators. But the services sector is still holding up okay. And one wonders if that is being partially driven by the the ongoing student loan pause. And I think it's also worth noting that there's still hope that the pause, that, that the conclusion of the pause won't be as damaging as initially thought, mostly because the Biden administration's executive order to cancel all that student debt, you know, for eligible holders is still to go to go before the Supreme Court. So a lot of people, so while you may have while if this was all 100% certain, set in stone, concrete, people would have been thinking, well, maybe I should start preparing to, to pay my student loans again. There's still that hope that, that a sizable proportion, if not all, stu- of a person's student loans could still get paid off if the Supreme Court decision goes the right way. So I think that the, in that way, it's going to be perhaps more of a shock than it would be if it was another policy expiring. Just to reset the room for the meeting, some odd minutes here, but please make sure you follow Tarek Brooker, I'm sure he'll be an avid commentator if you DM him as well. This will be on your favorite platforms under Lead Lag Live. And again, if any of you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left MicroQuest button. It's pre-election year, obviously, in the state. Do you get a sense just from the outside looking in that 
this is going to be some you know, political talking point or is the Biden administration going to try to do something else to try to you know, counter this dynamic or is this kind of a fait accompli? I think that there, I think it's going to be a, pol- I think it's going to turn into a political football. It was already used as a bit of a political football in debt ceiling debate. I mean, one of the, one of the conditions of the Republicans was that basically student loan payments resume because they believe that they are inflationary and I, you know, that the pause is inflationary, I should say. And I mean, in fairness, you know, injecting $250 billion a year extra into the economy is, you know, inflationary. But I do think that, yeah, that it's definitely going to get turned into a political football because at the moment, Biden doesn't have the votes to be able to get a debt cancellation bill through through Congress, or I should say a large-scale debt cancellation bill through Congress. And if the executive order gets knocked back by the Supreme Court, then, you know, it's going to be a pretty major talking point going forward because, I mean, it's a pretty powerful vote grabber. If you're someone who who has a lot of student loan debt, you know, you've seen it resume, it's started to really hit you, you're struggling with the cost of living already, you've already had negative real wages growth for quite some time. It's a pretty appealing thing to have, you know, to have a politician promise to knock, you know, up to 20 grand off your debts. And especially if, if they really want to go the whole hog and, you know, you end up seeing, you know, someone like Elizabeth Warren or AOC or someone getting involved in this and they start pressing for something even larger as a, as an election ploy, then, well, you know, then I think it could be quite a driver to, to get people out to vote. And thinking about this, I would, just, I would think that the parts of the economy that would decelerate the most would be probably anything related to travel, leisure, hospitality, right? I mean... If you're a student, you didn't pay off your loans, uh, it's a little extra cash to go, you know, travel across, you know, whatever country you're in. Well, in the U.S., obviously, we're outside. Any sense of if you think certain industries would get more impacted than others? That's the one that kind of stands out to me the most, but you know, there's got to be a lot more than that. Yeah, no, I think you've, I think you've hit it, you know, pretty well on that. Cause I mean, a lot of, you know, say for example, if you had all this extra cash, a lot of people went out during the pandemic and they bought, they bought a television and they bought a laptop and they bought all manner of goods. But as you say, you know, well, the data shows that large, that particular set of demand has largely been sated. And you've seen that, you know, with, for example, with, you know, deflation in multiple consumer goods categories. But I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of it being about services and even just about experiences, you know, whether it's, you know, the lo- a trip to the local nail salon or whether it's a trip to the, to a bar with, you know, with the boys or whatever or something larger, you know, those are the sort of things that I think are going to get hit. And, you know, I think it's, I think it comes at a challenging time just purely based on seasonality as well, because, you know, it's going to be coming at on the 30th of August, you know, provided there isn't some other form of intervention by the Supreme Court. So it's coming, you know, at the end of summer, you know, heading into winter. And, you know, it's coming as well in amidst a slowing economy. So, you know, I think that these sort of, you know, seasonal based businesses, travel, et cetera, they could really end up having a hard time when all this comes to a conclusion and to perhaps a bit of a rude awakening when those, shall we say, discretionary travel times resume in the new year. Yeah, no, that, that makes a ton of sense to me. And it does seem like the, I've noted this many times, I have a piece I'm publishing out on Seeking Alpha shortly on this, but it does seem like anything that's consumer or retail oriented is already starting to discount a slowness or even a recession in the U.S. Yeah, so you've got the headline averages, which are primarily driven by, you know, the mega five tech names. But the reality is beneath the surface, those areas which are most sensitive to the consumer economy are are just not performing well. So 
if you believe the market is a discounting mechanism of the future, those areas which are most sensitive to a slowdown because we spending, they're already telling you something is coming. Yeah, no, I, I concur. And I think it's just worth noting that it's about the makeup of the consumer economy as well. I mean, it's about the fact that the people, say, for example, you know, a lot of the people who perhaps hold these debts, the repayment pause is the thing that's keeping them going. It's the thing that's keeping them consuming. It's, you know, by this pause continuing, it's giving them that extra 400 and, you know, an average of an extra $460 a month that they have to spend on their leisure, on to spend on, you know, these discretionary services that they otherwise wouldn't have. But as you move up the food chain in the US consumer economy, you're still seeing, you know, relative strength in, in for the more affluent. So, you know, I think that's what makes this such a potentially powerful driver of outcomes in the US economy. Because, you know, if you do start to finally see that, you know, profound deceleration at the bottom end of the US economy, eventually it spreads to the top, just like it did in 2008. It's not going to spread as fast without a crisis, but eventually it does spread to those upper echelons who, you know, are perhaps, you know, quite insulated from, you know, the realities on the ground until things could really go wrong either in the economy or in financial markets. So about um, the Eurozone, maybe a little bit more, just given recession and still hiked rates. I mean, maybe it's stagflation, maybe it's not, but I thought that it's intriguing to me that there's still this narrative of growth and reflation while German manufacturing industrial activity is just kind of breaking down pretty substantially. Do you think we're, this is a temporary recessionary type of juncture for Europe or could we would be in a more prolonged type of environment? Because if it's more prolonged, it's only a matter of time until the U.S. must respond to that, I would think. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, no, I think it's going to be a more pro- prolonged thing because I have a hard time seeing them getting wages growth under control in Europe because so many various different unions and organizations have their wage demands or even just directly set by the CPI. So Europe is going to have a fairly substantial problem, you know, controlling wage inflation, which is going to keep things, well, challenging for them for quite some time to come. And it's also the fact that cheap Russian gas probably isn't coming back. And that is really what a lot of industry in in Europe, in particular Germany, is really built on. Like you've seen, say, for example, like the production of, say, the German petrochemical industry has really just fallen off a cliff because it's very gas intensive. It's very energy intensive. And unless you have access to that cheap and plentiful Russian gas, it's just not as viable as it was before. And I think it really just somewhat exposes the German economy's weaknesses for what it is. Because, I mean, you know, for what prior to the euro, the German economy was often called the sick man of Europe because they had the strong, they had the strong mark, which really made their exports uncompetitive in relative terms. And then, you know, they had the euro come in. They had a bunch of, you know, Southern European countries borrow a bunch of money, you know, the the pigs, and that helped drive down the euro and make their exports more competitive. And, 
you know, now we're sort of seeing that come full circle where it's, you know, Southern Europe places, you know, like, like, like Spain, which are performing, you know, quite well, at least in, on, in headline GDP terms, whereas Germany is performing very poorly. So, you know, I think we're going to see a bifurcation of outcomes in that regard. But at the end of the day, you know, the EU is something that, that runs on fiscal transfers from the strongest states like France, like Germany. And if they continue to be in the doldrums, then, well, things are, things are not going to go well for the rest of them in the longer term. You've been doing work on financial markets and global economy for some time. And sometimes things make sense. And sometimes things that you think make sense don't make sense. And it's totally different outcome. Is there anything that, that you observed which kind of shocked you in the way it played out with the narrative saying one thing, but the reality saying another? Well, if I was going to say something that shocked me, it would be the, the continued strengths of select housing markets, to be honest. Because we, we've seen, you know, say, for example, we've seen it in certain parts of Canada, in Australia, even, you know, even Germany, Sweden in certain places. And I didn't see that coming. And, you know, I'll, I'll put my hand up and say I didn't see it. And it's just, it's fascinating the way that different demographic forces and different changes to consumer psychology are feeding into all of this, because you'd look at it and you'd think, well, the largest relative rise in interest rates in history with the largest debt load in history, well, this is going to end pretty badly for, the, for these housing markets. And I still believe in the long term, it probably will. But in the short term, you know, say, for example, here in Australia, we've seen, you know, housing prices take off in some locales and it's just been it's been really something to watch, particularly given the fact that, you know, you look at the backdrop of, say, for example, consumer sentiment, well, that's collapsed to recession levels, yet it's somehow all just, you know, people are just sailing on by and thinking everything is fine. I just think that disconnect in terms of psychology is really profound. And just on that particular topic in terms of something that's really been interesting is that the theory this entire, you know, pretty much, you know, since always is that people getting older is, you know, a, a, de a deflationary factor. But I'm beginning to wonder if this whole COVID thing and just the change to psychology of, you know, YOLO, you only live once and you've got to, you know, live while you're alive or, you know, while you're out of lockdown, et cetera, has changed things and has, you know, altered the way that economies are going to function and the way the demographics function going forward. And that's something I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on. You know, it's funny. I, so I, I tend to be more of a, secular, very long-term deflationist, just in my own thinking. But I always go back to, you know, the real disinflationary, deflationary forces are widening wealth gap because Zuckerberg doesn't need two airplanes, right? So widening wealth gap, I'd argue, is disinflationary. Demographics, to your point, are disinflationary, deflationary. And then technology is disinflationary, deflationary. Now, to your point, the narrative on the demographic side changed so dramatically post-COVID. It went from demographics are deflationary to demographics are actually inflationary because there's less workers. The but now you've got the AI dynamic and everyone's saying that AI is going to replace the need to hire more people. So I always go back to my default that narrative follows price. I don't believe the argument that demographics are inflationary only because of the last three years when Japan has shown that's not the case. China is showing that's not the case. Maybe it isn't the case, but I don't think the cause and effect is there personally. No, it's, it's interesting. And you make a good point. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, China and Japan are interesting examples. I mean, although, I mean, I think there's a, I think there's a definite cultural disconnect there because, I mean, if you look at the savings rates of the Japanese or of the Chinese, they're obviously a lot higher than they are here in the West. And 
I don't know. I mean, the, I think the question is that, you know, we have, like, say, for example, here in Australia, you know, our the largest growth in terms of real consumer spending is occurring amongst those aged 55 and over. And that isn't a new thing here. That's something that's been going on since 2007, 2008. Like, I'll give you an example. In 2007, pet spending for those under the age of, between the ages of 25 and 34 peaked. For people under 25, it peaked in 2008 in real terms. So the Australian economy has very much been driven by boomers, by changes to their spending habits as they spend increasingly more and more. Now, while that spending is still below those people of working age, it is catching up. And I wonder if that is something that's unique to Australia in the sense that basically older Australians are generally in aggregate exceedingly wealthy because of the value of their properties and also the fact of compulsory superannuation here in Australia. So I just wonder, is that something that is unique to us where we are seeing, you know, this boomer powered economy where they're the ones like say for example the latest data shows the only growth in in terms of age demographics in terms of spending is amongst those who are 55 and over whereas those who are under it's going backwards so i i wonder you know if we're unique or if that's something that could perhaps show up in other economies yeah and i will say i think um i think it's less about within more to your point about the perception of death right so I myself made that argument coming out of COVID that we're going to have, you know, a very high inflationary period purely from the standpoint that if you are afraid that you're going to die next week, which people did think like that in the midst of the COVID, you know, lockdown, you might as well spend now to your point, just YOLO, fuck it, right? It's, you don't know how long you're going to live, so you might as well spend it and enjoy. And, you know, that sort of reminder of death is inherently inflationary. Now, historically, it's a reminder of death. Also call it the baby boom, which you're not having which I think makes this also kind of interesting from a longer-term population demographic standpoint. But, you know, presumably the longer that, you know, the further out you, in time you get away from COVID and that feeling that we all traumatically had, you know, the more people get reminded with to the reality that, well, shit, if they spend now and they're still going to live to an average age of 74, 75, they still have to have money to live, right? So I, it, I, to me, it's more a short-term effect of the thought that, Life was so transitory that you've got to spend now at some point that ends up, I think, moving past people's minds. Yeah, I think there's, you know, a fairly high probability that you're right on that. I mean, you know, humans tend to revert to the way we were. I mean, like, I remember when, you know, they first sh shut down New York City and everyone's, you know, the consensus swiftly became, you know, the city is dead. You know, no one's ever going to go back there. And I remember thinking at the time, well, you know, people went back to the city after the Black Plague. And this is not the Black Plague, so I'm fairly certain they'll eventually go back to the city. And that's it. You know, that's exactly what's happened. So I think, you know, with enough time, you know, things will eventually revert back to the way that they were. But I do wonder how long that's going to take and under what conditions that's going to occur. I mean, I wonder, you know, to what degree could this type of, you know, psychological change perhaps survive a recession? And, you know, the potential implications for that. You know, I mean, I think... You know, say, for example, here in Australia, it's very much survived, you know, the, this big downturn in consumer spending and confidence. But, well, that's not a recession. So it's going to be interesting to see exactly, you know, what this psychological change can live through before it's changed either by just the passage of time or the drive of necessity. Tarek, for those that want to read some more of your commentary and thoughts on anything and everything, where can they turn to? Well, they can uh, naturally, they can find me here on Twitter. I'm here 
far too much for some people's liking. And also, I have a Substack at avidcom.substack.com, and that's the long and short of it. You got to yeah. good place to wrap this Twitter space up. Again, everybody, please make sure you follow uh, Tarek Brooker. Thank you, Tarek. Really do appreciate it. No worries, mate. It's been a pleasure. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.